0: So today I'm back with my old friend, Eric, and his son, Jordan, and I wanted to chat with these two guys about especially Jordan's life as a gamer. Jordan, am I right that you have no memory in your life of not gaming? That's correct. Yeah. <laughs>
1: just started about seven years old, but really probably started before then. Yeah. His dad was making little role-playing games out of playtel knights or army men or Uh, uh, Star Wars spaceships as we were flying around the house. So, we've been doing role-playing since before I can remember.
0: And uh, what is the longest period of time you've ever gone without role-playing?
1: Due to an evil ex girlfriend, probably about eight months.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Boy, I, I, yeah, you know, I knew she was evil, but I didn't know she was that evil. Yeah, she's pretty dark. Boy, that is, that is, those are the dark times. Yeah. Eight
2: months of evil, man. That's right. Yeah. She was
1: very jealous. I started playing after I moved in with her with a group of people who were comprised of both males and females. And she was concerned that the lesbians in the group were going to be to steal me away from her. So I was. I was hard pressed to win (laughs) time after that to go game
0: with the group. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So you were raised on Second Ed uh, as far as fantasy is concerned. Yeah. and then um how old were you when you guys went to three and three five
1: probably 11 10 or 11 years old so right around 2000 2001
0: all right so through the years i mean eric obviously was um teaching you with his own home brews uh that we used when we were growing up at some point your home brews kept growing and you decided that you really wanted to make your own system is that right
1: yeah so we modified we started with 3.5 and we always kind of have house rules and then house rules became like system modifications and then it became like drastic overhauls like redoing the hit point system and making saves at times that weren't in the rule books and you know these kind of things using skill checks for things that they weren't intended for and making that a regular part of our game these kind of things and then at some point it was like okay so I'm doing a lot of work to modify this system and it's still offering some of the limitations that keep us from doing the things we want to do with our characters and keeping us from reflecting the journey of the characters and so i started to really come up with the idea probably 10 or 12 years ago that a new that that the system itself while i love it and it's familiar and you know i can do many of the storytelling things that i want to do with it it still limits my players In what they're able and allowed to do, uh, mostly with their characters.
0: Yeah. So, uh, when Eric and I played, uh, you know, we played a good 100,000 hours. One thing that we've talked about through the years, and we talked with you as well, was the problem of the arms race, uh, superpower coming in where magic. Spellcasters or magic items or whatever overshadowed and changed the world, like the entire world we played in. And I'm sure you caught the echoes of that, and uh, in your own games, either as a player or GMing your friends, you may have seen that to start happen. Is is this what led you to your uh, role playing game? So at some point you're still using three, five, and you've got all these home rules on it. And yet at some point, at least my experience was that my experience is the same thing, except with second edition, where I realized that all of these band-aids I have on it are not getting me where I want to go. Where did you want to go? You, you call your system ultra real, is that right? Yeah. Okay so where did you where uh did you want it to take you what kind of experience do you want your system to germinate or to facilitate
1: um i found that with modifying things that prevented the characters from being godlike and dad started some of that i don't know how long ago did you outlaw resurrections dad
2: it wasn't long after we talked about it and played with it when we did second edition. Um, and that was about the time we moved into the house up on Peace Trail. So that would have been 2000, 2001, like you said. And it was probably maybe a year or two after that. We actually ultimately just decided no more of this. Yeah. So what did you get rid of?
0: House. What's the give us the list again of everything that you can recall dumping?
2: Teleport got rid of it um resurrection we got rid of it um we got rid of oh gosh um any of those just super travel super fast moving things we kept dimension door because it was line of sight but you know we got rid of so much of the just you know travel as far and as you know fast as you can um in a moment a lot of the
0: star trek stuff that was a, a we, and it's funny how it crept up on us when we were playing um in my early 20s we didn't we didn't realize it was it was happening like we we loved like the excalibur movie and the feel of that and where we ended up was star trek next gen with swords and so yeah we we uh, it, it crept up on us and it, it kind of happened to us
2: Yeah. And I can't remember all those things, but we got rid of a lot of the really high-end stuff like that.
1: So I think that preserving the ability, and that sounds funny, but preserving the ability for the characters to die was the first window (laughs) into this isn't, the, the, the game that we want to play isn't these immortals just plowing their way through a fictional world. That, you know, the the fact that they have serious and mortal consequences to their decisions, really changes the way that players play and the way that the stories are told. And so that was, I think, the beginning of it. Um, I started with modifying the system by reducing hit points. And again, I found that the the way that the players made decisions, the way they approached battles and threats um, you know, became much more realistic, uh, and the, the and it, they did they didn't have less fun. That was the that was the best part about that. It, battles took less time, um, much more r- realistic than that way, and also like things like the Mexican standoff, were all of a sudden, available in ways that they hadn't before. You know, you got two yeah. people with with spells or even arrows. You know, depending on the the, the the characters like they aren't going to just kill each other because that doesn't serve anybody's good. But they're also not going to take the threat away because, you know, they need it for that moment. And so you get these interesting power dynamics. Whereas if you do that with a regular D&D system above second level, you're going to have characters who will just go ahead and let it fly and take whatever punishment comes, and then plow their way through a combat encounter without any, any real concern that they're going to die. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, and I understand the intention of making hit points and drawing out those combat scenes and, you know, why they did it. But I think ultimately it sacrifices a lot about the the mortal player stepping into the shoes of somebody that they can relate to and has the same fears that they do and you know that breaks immersion. It kills the the kinds of stories that you know we find so compelling
0: in literature and in life. Um, yeah, I totally agree. That's that's uh, what what uh, prompts. That's what prompted me, and that's what's uh, that's what pushing me uh, with my own system as well. Uh, whenever you whenever you began this venture do you still see it as attached to three five or did you just clean the whiteboard off and start from scratch? How, how, how distanced from this, do you see your system being? So there's gotta be some
1: major divorce. Um, and that was, I think more the, the idea. I don't think that's I want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Is that there are a lot of things about 3.5 system that I really appreciate, uh, the modularity of it, um, you know, the the classics of of having the dice in front of you, and um, you know, being able to have a pretty pretty simple mechanics to look at, and so I roll and I beat a number and so I succeeded, or I roll and you, you roll and whichever one of us did better wins. I mean, those kinds of simple um, mechanics makes, a, makes the game a lot of fun, fun to play. And so I don't want to get rid of all of that. Um, but some, a lot of the things that are meant to be simplif- simplifying become restrictive and mostly I'm talking about classes um, that you're funneled into and gain your set of abilities based on this choice you are forced to make in order to create a character. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas in the real world and in fantasy genres that are not role-playing related, you don't have such restrictions to these stark archetypes, Um, you know, some casters wear armor and use a sword and some casters are wizards in robes and some casters are you know a mix of, of various different styles of things or mm-hmm. you know one warrior has a completely different style than another and and 3.5 did a fairly good job of allowing those things but then it became <laughs> you need all of these Extra additions, all these third-party distributors, all these homebrew rules to to try to force the system into the story, and then you had to continue justifying these decisions you were making with your story instead of allowing the story to operate organically, and then your character develop as that goes. Yeah, um, and you know, I, I I became familiar enough with the system by the time I went to college that every time I introduce a new player, they'd be like, okay, how do I make a character? And I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Tell me what kind of character you want to make. And I will guide you through making the choices that it'll take to make that character. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that should be the way of making yeah. a character is this is the person that I want to play. This is the, the character that speaks to me that i'm interested in that tells the story i want to tell and the system should be able to simply take that information and put it into numerical effects so that you have something that that matches your vision instead of having to squeeze your way around the boxes that exist in the system
0: whenever i was out um this summer with you guys. So we did an experiment where you, uh, two different campaigns. What you guys uh, did was to have all of the numerical information just on your side of the screen. I, as the player, had no numbers and I rolled infrequently. It was purely on your end, for both of you guys, you were GMing from the gut. The idea was you just trust your instincts for reality, and I would describe and you would describe back, and then you would do some rolling. Uh, That experiment was really useful for me because it highlighted the ballpark of what I want. Whenever I GM or whenever I'm a player, what is ideal to me is that the experience of the player is... On the imagination, on the descriptions, and not thinking about any numbers or mechanical dynamics whatsoever. One example would be something like let's say that I'm some kind of a spellcaster and I'm going up against some other magical force. Under the old paradigm, I as a player would know my percentage chances of overcoming a certain magic and we would roll it. And then that numerical outcome would move things along one way or the other. What I'm in love with, what I realize that I really want is an experience where it's purely descriptive, not just on the opposition, but on my end as well. So, Eric, for example, GMing would describe whatever I happen to know about the magic that I'm against. And maybe I know nothing at all. Maybe I only have certain feelings or see certain things. And then I describe that I'm, you know, using my own power to combat it. And if I, as a player, am thinking about the numbers, or looking at the numbers, or even if I get to roll knowing what the final number is, that experience of pure imagination gets diminished for me. So anyway, that's what I experienced when I was with you guys, and and we did your campaigns. I really loved that. I loved what I learned about it from the player end. Can you guys... Talk about your own experience on the GM end of it. Eric, what was your experience of it when you GM'd that? And I had no, I had no numbers whatsoever. Well, with
2: mine, you had more than you did with Jordan's. Um, I had those numbers on my side for you, but um, you certainly had, for me, a frame of a character that I recognize as, um, through, through numbers and stats and things that, that helps me um, kind of steer all of that. So, that to, to me, as somebody that's been playing that style and enjoys that style of play, um, is helpful for me because I don't, um, I hate to say I don't let it restrict me, but I don't feel as restricted by that as some people might because I can look at that and see a, de- a developed character with a background story because that's where we start. We start with the background story. What what is this character? Who is he trying to be? What is he all about? What are his goals in life? That kind of thing. Um, and you know, for example, the 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 second campaign because we did that we did that first campaign which was really rough and both of us totally went different directions with it. But the second campaign that we did um, was a character who was in his life. Really. I mean, that was what it was about. And then the things that developed from his life developed his character further from where he, where we picked him up essentially. Right. And so many different things kept coming at you as a player to make these decisions. And you were, you were amazed like what, wait, how is this possible? How is this, how is this real? And, and you were, acting and reacting in those ways. For me as a DM it's really arduous to to not rely on somebody with those numbers because it's solely on my shoulders. But for I could see for your gameplay for as a player character it was probably um, really freeing and left you to really creatively decide things rather than decide based on the numbers that are sitting in front of you.
0: Yeah, that's a good word for it. It's freeing because, uh, like I said, I love miniature wargaming and board gaming, but I, it's there are two different experiences that I want. And when I role play, I don't want a miniature wargaming or anything in the ballpark of miniature wargaming anymore. I used to. I used to want the mixture of things. But now my appetite as a role player is, as a, as a player, I should say, is to escape all numbers and mechanical information. Um, so I, I loved the experience of not knowing my chances, not knowing my stats. Uh, I found that really enriching uh, from a player end. George, when you GM'd Eric and I, uh, what was different for you with us not having any numbers on our end?
1: I do you think that there is a load sharing issue um, whereas the the DM then is all of a sudden doing all the the actual work um, of trying to determine what success and failure looks like mm-hmm. um, without having, the concreteness and accountability that, you know, both players rolling really gives you. Um, on the, on the other hand, um, I found that there was a good bit of that reactionary psychology in place where, because you weren't aware that you had a plus 15 at a certain spell check that you were, you weren't, super confident that you were going to just be able to come in and just trounce the thing that you were going to have to, you know, come at it strategically, use what you had at your disposal and try to be creative to come up with something. And once you found something that worked in one situation, not being aware of all of the circumstances or the modifiers or the, you know, or even how much chance was involved in your first success, Mm -hmm. um, you know, relying on that versus you know trying to come up with something for the new situation that's all that's that all change um mm-hmm. the way that that things were approached um so i thought that was really i thought that was really intriguing um i i enjoyed i enjoyed the experience um and i found that the storytelling took a different slant to it it was much less as much as bookkeeping first of all yeah. um you know there was a you know mostly note taking on the story type things that were going on a few notations about something you learned or an ability that you feel like you could use again mm-hmm. you know equipment obviously was still an issue um but less so i mean um and so i i think that there's some parts of that uh and i guess my major concern is uh, besides load sharing, which I think is uh, is a thing as far as t- gaming tables are concerned, you know, making sure that everybody is doing something they enjoy and that the, the other part of it is agency. Because I know that my players, what well, I have gone to when I've played like mystery or horror games that we've gone to things where I roll all the dice and they don't Appreciate that because they don't feel like they are participating, even though they're making the decisions and they're doing all the choice making. Something about you know being aware of their chances is something that gives them a sense of agency.
0: Yeah. So this is interesting. Um, there's a, a documentary out there I, I think I told you about called The Secrets of Blackmore. And this talks about the very first role players, which were Dave Arneson and his group of friends from the 70s. And a couple of things that are notable as as relates to this is when they played, um, they were all friends and they trusted Dave Arneson to just do whatever he was doing and whatever determinations he would make. And at some point, um, this it it's difficult to, to determine how this happened, or maybe there are people out there who know, but where the distrust of the GM comes into play, and it's, it, it, which is strange, because groups of friends hanging around, playing this game. So, like, when you cite your friends not being happy about rolling the dice or seeing the dice is that a distrust issue what is that
1: um i think some of it you know uh the natural social power struggles might have something to do with it um just where you know somebody feels like they're not getting the the best of the situation some of them are competitive minded so they feel like they're not winning um, you know, these kind of things. And maybe those, those aren't all the, the types of players that you want in a game, but ultimately this is a social social situation. So I think, I think that the distrust is, is part of it. Um, just in the fact that um, some people can abuse the situation. I mean, I have, I've had friends bring personal issues into the game and vice versa. Um, and, and and sometimes those things are so subtle, or, you know, we're blind to them, as mm-hmm. we're playing, but they they're coming through. Um, mm-hmm. And so those kind of, you know, so there's some checks and balances involved with everybody having awareness of the mechanics. Um, but there's also this there's also been situations with people that I've played with where they're trying to tell a particular story and players are punished for deviating
0: on their particular story, right?
1: Right? And so um, again, where if you have, uh, you talk about mistrust, and that's a a fantastic way to, to create mistrust, right? So, especially when we're not aware ahead of time of what the story or what our characters are supposed to do. So that makes things challenging.
2: Well, it's a shared it's a shared story. So if the DM has a has a story that they're trying to um, tell and they're punishing the players, then he needs to just go write the novel and then not not DM. Yeah, because the shared story is everything is the sometimes it's not about the trust of the DM. It's about control of their own character, control of their own decisions and control. I mean, they want ultimate control. And if they don't see the numbers, if they don't have that visual in front of them, they don't have control because they can't min-max what's going on with that character. And I know for sure that I've got a plus 21 on this skill. And I, if he, he couldn't have rolled anything that I couldn't have made a successful roll on, whatever. Right. So, I mean, Having that kind of control and knowing those kinds of numbers kind of takes them into the mechanics of it and out of the role playing of it. And that's, you know, that's kind of part of the whole balance that I think a DM is required to be able to do in order to be a successful DM, because there's a variety of different personalities at any given game that you have to manage and juggle and and uh, mingle in order to tell the story that everybody's there to tell.
0: So the, the players who would be bothered by that seem to be more uh, toward the end of a miniature war game, board gaming mentality.
2: Yeah, usually.
0: Whenever you first started moving away from your home brew set and making your own, and you had a core group of players that you were testing it on your dad being one of them how did that experience go from the from the beginning of it was there resistance from your friends or did they enjoy it from the get go can you recall like how that evolved when i
1: started modding this the 3.5 system i had a lot of people who were really interested and then but but none of our games switched over. So our long-term campaigns didn't make a transition into those new systems. So we continued to play the old systems, the systems that were in place before. A little homebrewing here and there, but for the most part, pretty much 3.5 intact. Um, Once I started modding it, I had people who were interested and we played lots of games here and there, but nothing that really took off actually. Nothing that sustained for long periods of time in the same way that some of the other games did um with the original systems And then when I completely abandoned 3.5 uh to pursue a new system um' I'm, I've only ever been able to get one or two people on board to play at a time. Most of my my crew, any of the people that I've played with want to do something that they're familiar with. They want something that has some solid you know play tested rules. Um, they want to, uh, they don't want to have to relearn system information. Um, and so that's for the most part, it's been just pretty much a holding pattern of getting one or two people to uh, run through a story with me and see how that plays out and play testing through those kind of scenarios. And then as you know, and then we tweak, I tweak a a few things or come up with a whole new idea and revamp the system and then try again oh, yeah. and try again, uh, yeah. you know, a year or two later. So, was, I mean, it's been an incredibly slow process with a lot of resistance to my <laughs> regular players. Yeah. Um, all of them are interested when we talk about it. You know, obviously it comes up during games when I'm like, okay, so like, this is the kind of situation where a new system would be handy. And they're like, Yeah, you know, I can totally see that. We should try that sometime. Blah blah blah. But then, when the next time, you know, a month, two months, three months later, that same group gets together, we're back to playing whatever we were involved in before. And so the transition is incredibly slow. And part of that is that I haven't really done a whole lot of developing. Uh, Like I have a, I have a solid foundation for my system. But because I haven't done a lot of playtesting, I haven't put a lot of it, set a lot of it in stone. And so I think when people see that, they see it as a little, you know, half-baked and not really ready to yeah. be fully engaged in.
0: Yeah, I, I mean that that's so true. And I just I feel sorry for all my players. I feel sorry for Eric through the years with me having all these ideas and then trying them out on him. He was very patient. Um <laughs> my uh what I've noticed, I used to think it was just me, but I actually have discovered in the past few years that many uh, game developers who are after the same thing that we're talking about, that um, relatability and the power of real relatability and the the tool is, is realism, that the pitfall that I and many others have fallen into is in that pursuit we uh, end up obsessed with granularity and fall into what i call detailism and this was the failing of my previous iterations of my system where i was trying to grab on to the reality of something as i understood it and i thought that the way to get there was by paying attention to detail and i think that's a half truth um i think that the the power of relatability comes in when we have a global grasp of reality without getting distracted by detailism. And so, uh, over the past, I, especially three years, as I've gotten back into uh, developing it, um, I hold on to. You're familiar with the Pareto principle, which says that we get of our benefit from 20% of our work. And that principle applies to all kinds of things in in the world, like uh, corporate life or marketing or sales or, you know, whatever it is, that particular 20% gets you almost all of what you need. Have you, as you, you know, obsessed through the different mechanics have you found this true of yourself as well, where you're going down the rabbit hole and you you get lost in the minutia? Has that been happening with on your end? Yeah,
1: I, I've been pretty aware that because I guess because of the resistance my players have been giving me and I, and I haven't ignored them, I guess. I've been paying close attention and, and really want something that's going to be playable. For the people that I play with, which are not super into the crunchy mechanical simulation type games, that's not really what they're in for. Um, yeah. They do want the relatability. They do want the immersion. They want the system to feel reasonable um, and representative of a logical system, even, you know, when magic and stuff like that breaks the rules. They wanted to do it do so in a way that is... Um, that makes sense, right? That that is not going to just fly in the face of of all expectations, even if it is mysterious or, you know, um, rule breaking by nature. Um, so, like the the whole idea that I, you know, I, I've I've had the concept that I don't want there to be more roles for a long time, um, you know, and adding a few here and there, you know mostly matching roles rather than one person rolling and the other person rolling. And then, you know what I'm saying? And get it maybe having some, some layers of that going on. But, but if you get into series of roles and lots of charts, you have uh, just uh, the amount of, of time and the amount of um, the, the amount that it pulls you out of the story becomes to be an issue. And, yeah, I, and that's,
0: I, that's the paradox, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. People who are they they understand the, the con they, they get the concept that realism really does help. And so they really start <laughs> pursuing realism. And right. then they suddenly find themselves like, How did I end up working against myself? Because that's what happened. I'm like, right. how did this happen? And yeah. you know, it it is like, well, game designers are all neurotic. And so, <laughs> I mean, it's it's all part of it.
2: Yeah. um i i love your yeah. aha moment um this last time when you decided to uh pick up your game again your game creating again or system creating again and uh, i was like yeah yeah i think that's i think that's doable i think that's absolutely the path to follow and how do you follow that path right so you can explain that i won't explain it for you but-
0: Which, which, oh, you mean like what made me get back into it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. You woke up in the middle of the night. Yeah. I This, this is no joke. I had gone a literal decade without working on my system. Uh, I, I would play a little bit when I uh, went out to see you guys in Carolina, but that was it. I was not role-playing. I put all my stuff away. I was focused on writing. Um, And I had a dream where i fixed my combat mechanic in the dream and uh i i woke up with it and i was shocked at it and then came to realize the muse was telling me you have no choice you have to work on your system again Uh and the the dream what i fixed in the dream was realizing that one of the major problems with my melee mechanic was you had attacker versus defender and the defender was working to keep from getting hit obviously but there was still too much randomness in the attack itself as opposed to the reality is if someone is standing still and you swing at them you have hit them it is only the defender's actions that keeps them from getting hit it's not their armor either it's just their actions their armor may absorb some of the damage But, yeah, that's what uh, got me started. And that actually is what uh, was the major fix of my combat, uh, as well as other things where I distilled down the math. And this is another thing where the Pareto principle just absolutely pays off. I, I was on a percentile system and I was having the granularity of attack minus defense. Uh, the problem is what I had learned from someone, which was that the human brain does not like doing math higher than like 15 or 20, like it can still do it, but it, it takes, uh, much longer to do math. That's in, uh, higher than 20, at least than it did, you know, for much, you know, much lower to the single digits. And so I truncated a lot of that anyway, um, Uh, I've come to see the value of distillation and grabbing on to the overarching principles rather than digging all the way to the nitty-gritty. Now, the nitty-gritty can still be relayed to the players, and I think that's powerful. I think it's powerful to say, Jordan, the arrow went through your left bicep and is actually cutting into the wing of your back. It went all the way through at that weird angle. Now, I don't need a chart to tell me that. I need a chart to give me a general reality. It hit you in the upper arm. And then the rest of it, we can extrapolate in good faith. I I don't like systems if, if a GM says, okay, something like that happened, but there's no mechanical backbone to justify that event. I don't like that. I think that's GM Fiat and I'm against that. So I I think it's a mixture of the two. You know, there does need to be
1: some times where you're able to zoom in to figure out what's going on. And I think that was the big revelation for my last iteration is the ability To have large general things occurring so that you can roll once and, and, you know, kind of get the general feel of what's going on if we're traveling across country or trying to survive in the wild in general, or even, you know, face army to army. You know, you have some general things like there's not going to be a whole lot of things that you can do in a specific moment, or the story doesn't need you to know the specifics of how this thing turned out that it's gonna turn out a specific way. There are gonna be other times where I'm trying to drive a dagger into this other guy's eye slit and his armor, and he's t- really trying to for me not to. And if I get another opportunity, I will find something else. But being able to zoom in and say, what are the skills involved? What are the abilities that both of us are contesting at that point? Yeah, right. And am I better equipped to drive that dagger in, or is he better equipped to keep me from doing so? You know what I mean? And whether that's my abilities, you know, my my uh, you know natural talents or or capacities, um, or you know some level of training, or the quality of the equipment we're using. You know, some of the, all of those things can can determine what's going on in those specific moments, um, and I think the ability, I think a, a the system for me needs to be able to unarbitrarily zoom in and zoom out. Right. Yeah. Be able to handle both of those situations, which has been the problem. the the argument against three point five with everything that's happened since fifth edition, fourth and fifth edition is it's too zoomed in. You know, if I need to notice that there's something in the room, I have to roll a skill check for it, right? Um, and and you know, what about smell? There's no smell check. What was it you said? You know, what was you said? You have the breathe in skill, but not the breathe out skill. Right. And so, you know, they have all these kind of situations. Um, And then fifth edition did exactly the opposite, where you're zoomed all the way out all the time. You have only combat skills and then a general broad list of other things that you might be able to do pretty well at. And they all progress at the same rate and there's no specialization. And there, that doesn't say very much about who you are as a character um, other than the fact that you came from this background and you have these kinds of abilities. And these are the things you've been trained in. I mean, literally three sentences can can
0: uh, summarize your, your whole character. Yeah, right? right.
1: And that's, and that's not the kind of game that I want to play. You know what I mean? I want to be able to zoom in and say, let's get very specific in a moment because this is tense and we didn't, we need to know how it turns out. Right. You know, but I think we've serious contest.
2: I think 3.5 does, a, I mean, easily bring the ability to zoom out at this think People aren't creative. Um, you know, you don't have to bring that level of detail to everything. You can make some broad stroke rolls and, you know, determine an outcome without every single character having to be involved in that.
1: Right. Um, But you're, you're having to creatively manipulate the system to do so. The system as it's ruled, you, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. And these are the things that go on. But We loosen it up a lot. When we need to, and we tighten it down a lot when we need to and that, but we have to manipulate the system to do so it's not built in.
2: Right. Well, I suspect that any system is going to be such that you're going to have to either manipulate the system to zoom in as far as you really want to, or manipulate the system to zoom out as far as you really want to. Yeah
0: where I've landed on a lot of things as I'm I'm working toward distillation of results is I see results as anchoring points that give like a categorical result. And I call them anchoring points because I think any system that you're using, uh, the GM has to Uh, Arbitrate and relay reality. And so if you're hit and, you know, I have wound levels one through 10, and if, you know, a player gets hit with a wound level six, that gives a a category and it gives a, a foundation of effect. And then that anchoring point is for the GM to use to start describing and, and start relaying impairments, right? Your, your leg is, is hurt pretty badly. You're bleeding and you describe it, but it's not arbitrary. There is the foundation underneath. And if I think that that kind of paradigm is really paying off in, in my, um, what I hope to be my last iteration of my system. Yeah. Long campaigns, we're all in love with long campaigns, I think. How does the system that you're using relate to short versus long campaigns? Um, I read some people who that their idea of great gaming is probably like campaigns that last under six sessions. Um, I think the three of us are on the other end of that. As you think about system, whatever system we're talking about, um, how do you think that that impacts it? Like your own system, Jordan, is it geared toward short or long campaigns or would you say that that's irrelevant? Um, I would say probably innately towards long, just
1: because the the system is focused on character development which takes time, um, you know. If you you want to come up with a story, and then generate a character based around based on that story, and then see how that person grows through the challenges that they face in the story, that's that's what I love about the game. And so I guess that's what I've brought into the system. That's what I wanted to be the the main focus. Um, mm-hmm. That kind of dictates a, a longer, you know, sitting time.
2: Some of our some of our longest campaigns came from a conversation in the car. Oh yeah, where
1: we're yeah.
2: Where, where we're talking about oh you know there, this these guys are really good friends and you know they've been doing this thing and all of a sudden, we we start this whole campaign based on these two guys we talked about in the car. You know, as is, is fantastic conversations that lead into. You know, campaigns that have lasted for years and even brought other people in that they want to play that campaign too. You know, yeah. I'm thinking of our Space Pirates campaign.
0: Yeah, that's right.
2: Specifically.
0: In your experience, do you think that players, even the ones that um, you played with off and on for years, are happy to jump systems or do you think that we get entrenched and don't like leaving and trying you know different very different systems
2: well i can tell you this <laughs> <laughs> i've played a lot of different systems because of various reasons i started second edition and to go to 3.5 it took some real coaxing on my son's side to say hey this system's actually pretty cool it makes a little more sense in the battle area and so it took him a lot of coaxing and the guys saying, yeah let's try this system let's try this system for me to actually decide to go that route and when i went i have to say 3.5 was much better than second edition um it was a battle though it a was a better. battle. It, it was. It was on. It was on. It was like convince me. And I mean, he, he was angry at us. I was like, "Why are you guys traitors?" <laughs> and so uh, Man, that's funny. I thought yeah. I raised you boys better than this. It's I, right. I, I yeah. do not understand.
1: I mean, he defamed our character on a regular basis, even after we made the switch for a while.
2: And so once we made the switch and we had these characters we wanted to bring over and, and keep playing these guys, it never happened. You know, it just doesn't. Yeah. And so those are just, those are Yeah, just, you end
1: up abandoning stories they've been telling for years.
2: Yeah. And that's and that just, part is hard. That's hard. It's sad, but but you go on, you get new stories and you grow to love those as well. And so I think, I think what you have to really kind of consider is, does that system help the shared story for everybody that's playing. I mean, is it great for the DM, but nobody else wants to do it? Then it's not a great system, right? The DM's excited about it, but nobody else wants to play it. It's not a great system, regardless of how great the system is. Because it's not helping that shared story, because to me, that's all it its is. We're really all about telling the shared story that everybody's involved in, then the system is only secondary to that. And this has been my opinion for a very long time. And I've experienced a lot of different things. And I'm like, I would love to incorporate this. Let's see how, how it plays out with everybody that we play. And when it doesn't pan out, you know, you have to kind of say, okay, well, that's that's not for this group. And then then if you have other groups you can play with, then you might try it with another group. Um, You know, that's just kind of where I see it.
1: And on the other end, the guys who have been playing 3.5 with forever, I mean, since we were 12, and now we've been playing for 20 years, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of switching to a new system is very resistant, especially a couple of them. But this is their only group, especially like I have a couple of friends who they've only ever played with me and they've only ever played 3.5. And they've been playing 3.5 with me for 20 years. They know what to expect. They know how to tell their stories. They know, you know, how things go. That's that's what they're, they're there to play the game with each other. That's how we spend time together. That's where we shoot the shit and and, you know, have fun together they're not there to try to understand role-playing better or to improve their experience. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're doing the thing that they have grown to love to do and changing that defeats the point. Uh, and the other groups that I play with, we're constantly playing new games. We've tried all kinds of new systems, d 6 systems and D12 systems and digital systems that don't have any dice at all because they're like one through 24 or you know, the the dice size changes each time and you can't do that with an actual dice, you know? So, you know, we play different systems all the time. And for them, you know, we stick to one system for a while, we play it, we run the story out that we were interested in, and then we move to a new system to see if what we like about it and what kind of different stories it tells for us. So, I mean, there've been different different stuff like that um, a lot. So, um, the... The resistance to the system change, I think, probably depends on the types of players you're looking at. Um, And as far as from the perspective of a game maker, both of them offer their different opportunities. right? You have people who are going to jump in and try to see how things go. And then you have another group that if they decide to switch, it's probably going to be for the rest of their gaming experience, or at least until something really significantly better comes along. So,
0: yeah, uh, one of the ways to view um, gamers is on one end, you have the the strong social component, the beer and pretzels gamers. And they actually, um, on the far end, they don't care at all about the actual role playing. It's kind of like we get together for movie night. And the point is for us to be in this room and to drink and eat and whatever. And on the far other end, if they if we stick with the movie watching uh, analogy, they are movie aficionados and they're very critical of acting and directing and script writing and scenery and, you know, all of those things. And then most people are somewhere in between. And the people who that you described, like the point is to get together together and essentially not seek to improve the role playing per se. That seems somewhere closer to the beer and pretzel gamer where it's a social thing and they don't want to, they're actually not interested, as you say, in improving the role playing experience. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's
1: it's like the people who get together for Lord of the Rings marathons. Even though they've seen it a hundred times and they've seen it with the same group of people a hundred times, they're getting together yeah. to see something that they love with other people who love it. You know, they dare
2: you, you to change their movie on them.
1: Yeah, and you, yeah. they show up, and you're like, "Just kidding, we're watching Star Trek." And some of them might be okay with it, and others are going to be like, "No, that's not what I fucking yeah. showed up for." You know, yeah. I came to, to watch Lord of the Rings. This is what so I'm even doing. if
0: someone even if someone made a Lord of the Rings trilogy that was worth seeing, they wouldn't <laughs> want to watch it they would rather see the Peter Jackson abortion than actually watch a trilogy. (laughs) Is is my opinion coming through on this? I think it's No, that's right. That's probably true. My subtlety. No,
1: but you know what though? And and that's an interesting point. and, And an interesting thing about Dungeons and Dragons as a franchise and, and the powers of franchises in general is that if new Lord of the Rings movies came out, the old Lord of the Rings fans would go see it. You know what i'm saying and so there's something there mm-hmm. about that um and there would be a whole nother group of people who would wait for those first people to go see it and like hey how was it it's so worth it <laughs> yeah yeah you know?
2: right well and then there's the group of people who go see it right away just so they can criticize it so you know there's there's that daniel right <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you have any last uh, thoughts about your adventure in becoming a game designer that like would save anyone lots of suffering?
2: As the lackey that gets to do all of the role-playing, gets sucked into doing all the (laughs) role-playing testing. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Stick with the game. No, I'm just kidding. It's, It's a lot of fun. We have fun. Yeah. Um I, I
1: mean for me it's it's only worth it if you have a goal in mind and that goal needs to include the people you play with. You know, and that's that's been my big guiding star is you know listening to dad and listening to Jared and listening to the people that I play with. Like and, and ha- st- sometimes even interrupting games that we are currently playing, which sometimes gets annoying to my friends. But in saying, what if we could do this right now? What if this was the way this went instead of the way that we're doing it right now? Right. And listening to the reaction, even if it is you shut up and play. Sometimes that's enough, you know, to mm-hmm. say, OK, that's not a, enough of an idea to really change the situation. Mm-hmm. So that's
0: that's been my experience. How old were you when you recognized that system matters? Seven. <laughs> now, at some point you would have, you would have been playing many campaigns because you guys didn't just play infrequently. You guys played all the time. All right? the time. Yeah. And so, yeah. Do you recall a, a moment that descended on you like, you know, system really does matter. Because for me, it was at the end of the Guild Adrian campaign when we looked at the world, and it was looking at the world. We're like, we fucked up the entire world, and we had no idea how it happened. It wasn't our fault. It wasn't. uh well, it was, of, but yeah. Well, it was because we were we were stuck in in D D land. Well, we and, were stuck. We were
2: stuck in the arms race for
0: sure. In the arms race, yeah. So, yeah. what for you, Jord, did you have that? A particular moment where or was it just like you were so used to homebrewing things that you're if they just piled up, like what was your experience that pushed
1: you? I mean, the arms race is definitely a real deal. And I definitely and what my moment actually was when a friend of mine tried to DM. And he was not as used to doing things the way the dad had taught me to do things. It's, which was, you know, slowly introducing magic and making it something very hard to acquire and work for. And he hands out a whole bunch of magic items right from the beginning. We were probably 13. Okay.
0: Yeah. And
1: he's like, he's like, I just want everybody to start with some magic items and I want them to be cool magic items. And we just went through and had literally, we had fun for about two hours out of a six-hour session where we just laid waste to the beginning of the beginnings of an orc horde right yeah and then after that we just continued to lay waste to the orc horde and it wasn't a challenge and we weren't having to expend a lot of resources and we weren't in threat of death and it became a slog you know um and that was the first time i remember well that that's the biggest one where I remember it about world building. Cause it's like this idea that this orcord is this massive power that should be terrifying to our characters. And there's four of us.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, and that, and it should be a world changing event that this orcord is coming down on the mountains. That's what he was trying to make it and trying to force us back into the city and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But we, he could not without Changing them from orcs turn the tides against us because of these magic items he had assigned us at the beginning.
2: We used you know to attribute mean? we used to attribute that to Monty Hall. I don't know if you remember the old yeah uh, game the the game show. I don't remember the game show now. Now that I think about it, but Monty Hall was what we always attributed that to. Is that you get everything, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this in too, just for good measure, and. So you have everything. And if you do that for your characters, you've also got to do that for your enemies. And so that becomes this enormous system now all of a sudden that you have to manage and maintain.
0: Yeah. And when
2: they kill that guy, now they have his stuff. And there's, it's just an ever building snowball that you never get out of. Yeah. That's
1: the arms race. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the random magic item charts and, the, oh, yeah. and
0: yeah. the
1: treasure tables and that kind of stuff all just screwed all that up. And if you're yeah. looking at, you're <laughs> looking at a medieval uh, production infrastructure, there's just nothing that can repeat the kind of
0: things that they're looking at that's so, right yeah. yeah all right great well uh thanks for joining and we will uh do this and next time we'll find ways to make fun of your dad more That yeah, you point. guys did
2: not make fun of nearly no themselves. we're sorry
0: eric we, we really dropped the ball <laughs> all right see you guys right. Bye.